0: 18- Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, world. This is the Global Media and Communication podcast series. I am Aswin Poonathambekar, the Director of the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communication. This is Jing Wang, the Senior Research Manager at CARC. Our podcast is part of a multimodal project powered by CARG, here at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. At CARG, we produce and promote critical, interdisciplinary, and multimodal research on global media and communication. We aim to bridge academic scholarship and public life, bringing the very best scholarship to bear on enduring global questions and pressing contemporary issues. Hi. Welcome to the podcast, Global Media and Communications. I'm Sim and will be your host today. I'm a first-year PhD student at Annenberg and a fellow at the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communications. Today, our guest is Dr. Jonathan Gray, who is the author of the book, Dislike-Minded, Media Audiences and the Dynamics of Taste. He is currently a professor of Media and Cultural Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and broadly speaking, his research examines how media entertainment and its audiences interact, and examines how and where value and meaning are created. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. Uh, Would you like to just briefly introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm Jonathan Gray. As you said, I I teach at um, UW-Madison. I'm a a weird um, global mix. I'm Canadian and uh, English and now um, American, but I grew up moving around the world. Um, I love watching media all over, and so I ended up studying it. So that's me.
2: Where was your favorite place to live?
1: Uh, Hong Kong, by far. I, I I was there from age 12 to 15, and it was the 80s, and you could do anything in Hong Kong. You could follow anything. It was, it was the most brilliant place ever. Um, I still love it.
2: So we're going to just quickly uh, just talk about the book itself, because it is a fascinating book. Um, and just to begin with, uh, could you talk about the brief history of this book? What sparked your interest in this topic and how you begun imagining it as a book?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, you said brief, and I, so I promise I will be brief. But I think there's probably like four places it came from. Um, one is is all the way back in grad school. I, I had to take this um, this class on uh, methodology, and I was looking at audiences, and and I found so much of the work on audiences in the 80s and 90s um, was about fans, and there wasn't much about like non-fans. And so I wrote this piece um, that I I published in International Journal of Cultural Studies. Um, And I was hoping that, you know, people would respond by doing the work Um, and there wasn't too much done for, for a while. And so I ended up thinking, okay, well, it's time that I go back and do it. Um, And that leads to a sort of second place where this came from, which is that my, my previous um, monograph with so separately is all about paratext. So it's about where, how much meaning comes from the things that are around the thing itself. So, you know, trailers, reviews, interviews, and so forth. And when you start to get into that, you get it, I got into a mental space of thinking, well, if we're constantly making sense of the world uh, of a text based on the things around them, that means that people who dislike things, who refuse ardently refuse to like watch the the movie itself or the TV show itself, but will tell you why they think it's bad, um, th- that's a, a huge group. Um, and, and so this got me interested in in, in looking at that. But meanwhile, I, I was in Malawi. My, my wife does work in Malawi. I've done some work in Malawi. Uh, joining her, I was asking Malawians about how they consumed American TV and Nigerian TV and movies. Um, and what I found so fascinating was how often people were so much more articulative about what media meant to them. When they were talking about the media, they disliked. So when they would tell you with passion why Nigerian media was ruining um Malawi or why American moody movie, movies were ruining Malawi and, and um it really got me excited by this idea that um that dislike might be the the place to go and that some people were way more willing and excited to talk about dislike than they were about like and then finally you know the world at large was just you know the last decade or so um you know we've seen so much dislike, hate, trollery. Um, and So it seemed like the, the time to, to delve further into negative emotions.
2: So I think that I find quite fascinating in your book, especially the point around a form of community solidarity around dislike. How does your book figure into your broader academic trajectory and identity? Uh, what conversations in global studies of media and communication do you engage with in the book?
1: Yeah, so I mean, to, to address that first question, on one hand, I, I sort of it was almost like part three of a, like a textuality trilogy like my first book was about intertextuality second book was about paratextuality and as i just mentioned that got me fascinated by how does textuality work for the people who may not actually consume the thing itself or who consume it begrudgingly like resentfully um and and so on one level i sort of see it as 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 that I, i also always cared a lot about audiences and i I went through a sort of decade or or so where I was looking more at texts. Um, And so this figures in, and it's sort of me getting back to studying audiences and really wanting to join the the discussion and change the discussion so that we're not just talking about fans. I have no problems with fan research. but That can't be all audience studies is. And so this was part of of me trying to sort of fight for a a different type of, of audience studies. As with the second question about the global part of it, I mean, I I will note that there's not a huge amount of sort of like explicit invocation of, of the globe at large, um, in the book, uh, the, the Malawian data figures in there. Um, and, and I think, uh, sort of implicitly, I guess I'm, I'm interested in, in those notions of how, you know, when we turn to global media audiences so often that the question that has been asked is one about, you know, cultural imperialism. Um, and people either seem to like the thing um, or they're they're assumed to like it um, as an active audience, and I wanted to you know get back on the the table of possibilities the the, the dislike um, and the active dislike and you said communal dislike. Um, so you know uh, part of the idea idea is hopefully sort of opening up the space of questions we can ask. I mean, connecting those perhaps maybe precisely because fan studies has tended to veer in a very sort of anglo am centric way um i wonder how many people around the world looking at other you know contexts wanting to do audience work have been turned away from some audience work because of the sort of the huge power that fan studies has and a fan studies that may not have left them feeling sort of welcomed um and so maybe this can be a small part of of the sort of process of, of as i said opening up what audience studies could be
2: so in the book, you know how your thinking has evolved from your earlier publications insomuch, and I will quote, you say no longer you, that you no longer see dislike and hate as simple opposites of like and love. Could you tell me uh, more about how and why your ideas change in the process of researching and writing um, and how you differentiate the two emotions and why it's important to make that distinction?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because I've never had this situation before when writing a a um a lit review um i mean my my earlier piece on anti-fans and non-fans has been cited well and and um used well and so it, it was a sort of key piece of lit that i had to work with and yet i disagreed with it so much i was in the odd situation of like the biggest fight i wanted to pick was with myself um <laughs> So anyway, hopefully that shows that like thinking can evolve. And I mean, I would underline, it was a paper I wrote in, in grad school, uh, my first solo pub uh, early thinking, but I, I think, you know, and I'm proud that I was get some trying to get some things on the table, but in the process of doing so first, I used this sort of awkward metaphor about like sort of, you know, protons and, and electrons and sort of positively charged, negatively charged. It put everything on a binary, and I don't like that idea. of The binary, because the more I thought about it, the more you realize that, like fandom always involves in, intense amounts of of negative emotions, um, and negative emotions can often have a lot of positivity um, built into them too. So we really can't see fandom and anti-fandom as sort of you know opposites from each other. We need to see them as working, you know, hand in hand. I, I've also changed my thinking in as much as I really think we need to distinguish between the multiple different types of negative emotion. Like there's not just one type of negative emotion. Heating is not the same as disliking, which is not the same as disgust and so forth.
2: So I find it quite interesting because just touching on kind of your previous experiences in academia, but also um, the fact that you did mention that in audience studies is predominantly captured by kind of the focus on fans and liking um as a concept and in the book you also argue that academia has left very little room for exploration of dislike why do you think that's the case and how do you think your book contributes to filling that gap
1: yeah i mean i think some of it just comes from i I almost think it's like weird timing in that you know like audience studies in the sort of cultural studies qualitative tradition launches when at a particular moment of the sort of pendulum swing in how we think about audiences, you know, there was this, there, it was a, there was a huge response to the sort of hypodermic needle idea that like media was full of bad things and you jab it into someone's leg and then all of a sudden they become bad. Um, and it was, you know, there were the whole notion of like audience resistance, um, captured the moment. Um, and so the, the field got excited by, fandom and by like and how like could be a site of activity and how it wasn't as simple as we thought it were was and then at the same time the field became smitten uh, understandably so with Pierre Bourdieu and you know in distinction he really sets out this idea that if you dislike something you're a snob um and so you put those two together and I think it just kind of left us in a point where like dislikers were snobs like they were the bad guys they weren't the we we had all suffered under endless You know expressions of dislike and so the field just kind of naturally veered towards like um i think the dislikers became political economists and the the likers became like audience studies scholars um and and so i think that's where where some of it came from
2: and so what do you think is the role of of media and cultural studies in amplifying the voices of dislikers and how can scholars in these fields better understand and appreciate the kind of different registers of dislike
1: yeah, um, I think the point is that um I media cultural studies needs to listen, right? Like in the audience sort of studies in a cultural studies mode, the, the whole point was we go to audiences because we can't assume that we as the academics know the answer. We might look at a text and say this is what it is but, you know, we, we always need to then go, okay, but what are they, the people who are interacting with it? Think about that. Um, and, and so it's profoundly about listening. Um, and so the, the media cultural studies, um, if, if we're only listening to and amplifying the voices of people who like we're, we're missing something. Um, now when we start to listen to dislike, we're going to hear different types. Um, dislike we're going to hear voices that we think need to be amplified and we're also going to hear voices that we don't think need to be amplified it's one of the reasons i studied dislike not hate because i think there are a lot of haters out there who i ethically didn't want to play any role in amplifying their voice like white guys who are mad because you know black people are on the screen i i they don't deserve any extra like play from me um and and so what I was interested in doing instead was listening to some other forms of dislike from some other voices that I, I thought were quite noble and had important things that we could listen to.
2: And I think your method of refractive audience analysis seems like a promising way to understand how adaptations of media text affect people's perceptions of the original. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit more on that method and kind of what insights it can provide.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's very specifically just about adaptations. Um, but, um, it, it it struck me that, um, what's when you ask someone or when someone pontificates on why they dislike, um, you know, the adaptation or the reboot or the sequel, um, it becomes this beautiful space where you can hear what the original meant to them. Um, in a way that, I found as an audience researcher, if I just come up to you and say, you know, why do you like this show? You'll probably have all sorts of answers for it. Um, but I, I bet I can get more out of you. Um, if there's a sequel to it. Um, and then I ask you like, what didn't they capture or what did the reboot miss? Um, Cause all of a sudden in comparing those two, you, 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 you get that sense of longing of, of the thing that you needed um and and so sometimes i think that's a moment where audiences themselves realize um and discover what it was about the original they loved so much um and so the refractive audience analysis is just about sort of you know capitalizing upon that and, and jumping in and saying hey tell me about um you know what's missing
2: and in the book i think there are a couple of examples that you use i think the gilmore girls revival series was one of them
1: yeah no i mean that, that was fascinating we did this um this survey asking people about the Gilmore Girls, um, so many people who disliked it. Um, and especially a lot of them just felt that Rory had had gone off the rails. Um, and in listening to them, it was a great way of hearing what Rory meant to them all along, particularly because it was years later, right? And I think that's another thing, nice thing about refractive audience analysis, it's, it's it presumes that you're doing it later. But so often when you ask audiences, so much of our audience research is about how people are reacting to things they've just seen or recently seen. Um, and there's there's something nice about coming back 10 years later and saying, you know, what does Rory Gilmore meant to you all these 10 years, and now why are you mad that that's not what she is?
2: <laughs> I mean, I love that chapter. Um, I kind of grew up watching Gilmore Girls, and then I had the exact same reaction where I was like, I don't really like the revival. And so when I was reading it, I just it made me laugh.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I was I was in Australia recently, and and um, uh, Katie Ellis at um, Curtin University offered a, a very strong um, point that maybe Rory was actually was bad all along. That actually what people were reacting to, like, we might need a little more psychoanalysis And that what they were really reacting to was like realizing, oh no, Rory was the villain all along. She always was this very entitled white woman.
2: Exactly. And as a child, you don't acknowledge or appreciate that, but watching it ten years later, you're like, oh, okay, you understand the nuance. Um, I also kind of wanted to touch more on the methodology of the book because you chose to avoid positioning people by demographics such as race, gender, or sexuality unless the interviewee themselves brought up um their identities in the context of their dislikes. And I was wondering if you could explain the rationale or the reasoning behind that decision and how it relates to your broader research goals.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I should say that we, we weren't going into it like quote colorblind or anything like that. Um, that We were very open to discussing um, and, and posing issues about all sorts of demographics and identity in the interviews. I think what you're referring to is in the writing up um, I've I've never liked when I'm reading audience studies and someone opens the parentheses and puts you know like, um, middle-aged, black woman, 34, close parentheses, and, and onward we go. And I, I mean, I'm, I I get why people do it. So if anyone's listening to this, I'm not subbing you. I promise. Um, but my concern with it is that it 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 means that the the um researcher is declaring. Which demographics matter, um, and I also worry about like which demographics count uh, and make the parentheses, and which don't. Um, so that was part of it, um, and, and I wanted to allow people to dictate when they thought their demographics and identity mattered. Um, now, the other part of it was there was a bit of an ethic of sort of providing, you know there was some of the sort of ethic of, of realizing that, uh, you know, I have the full interviews. Um, I get the context or better context in which one single line is mentioned. Um, and sometimes you provide those demographics for sort of like do it yourself analysis from the reader. Like you're, you're allowing the reader to sort of say, Oh, I can see why they might say that because they're 34. But what I find problematic with that is that, as I said, like, I've just given you one line. And so I, there were often moments where I, I, what someone was saying might seemingly be explained by their demographic, but then they had like a whole paragraph later, which contextualized it. So I kind of wanted to step away from that. Now, I don't think that it's the perfect system. Um, There are all sorts of, you know, critiques that could be made of how I've done it. Um, As I said, maybe it is, it's guilty of colorblindness for instance. Um, But I, I, you know, maybe I was just sort of shaking it up and sort of seeing how it works.
2: Just related to that, do you think that there is kind of any warranting of actually showing or being more transparent about transcript data to people who are researching this area? So the data that you've collected and making that more open?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think of Martin Barker in in the United Kingdom once was trying to sort of get... um you know, momentum to behind a sort of creating like a repository of, of, um, of transcripts so that like anyone could go in and read the data on anything. Um, the problem is there's all sorts of ethical issues with that. Right. And, and so I think like, I just know my IRB would not approve of what you're posing or what Martin is. And I think most IRBs were wouldn't. And I suspect that's why the di- the idea kind of uh, died. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's this real problem with audience studies is that like I write on texts too. And the the glory of writing on texts is that you have access to the text or you hope you have access to the text that I'm talking about. Whereas uh, when I'm talking about audiences, you really do just cut the kind of trust me as the the writer. And that's an awkward position for us all to be put in. Um, But I I don't know if there's an easy way out of that.
2: No, I completely agree. But it's an interesting topic to explore. Yeah. Just going back to chapter one of your book, uh, you refer to Gerald Jeanette's definition of paratex um, as all the elements that surround a work, but not part of the work itself, such as trailers, posters, and merchandise. Um, And you also discuss how this applies to media events like the Super Bowl, which, as someone who has just recently moved to the States, I have now encountered firsthand um, kind of what a big cultural phenomenon that is. Black artist, yet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I saw Rihanna. if That was fine. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Um, and I was just wondering uh, kind of why you think it's crucial to take paratex uh, seriously when studying audience uh, responses to media and if you could give um, kind of other recent examples of how paratex uh, shape audience perceptions and understanding of a media product Um, And how do you think active audiences interact with paratext and how they can reshape or be influenced by paratext in their interpretations of a media or an object?
1: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, there's a quick answer, no, if you want, which is that if all you care about is media as aesthetic objects, um, then you really don't need to touch paratext. Um, But if you are interested, as I am, in media as cultural objects, then, if you think about it, it's absurd not to consider the paratext because people are not disciplined enough. You know, like when you ask them about The Simpsons, for instance, they automatically exclude any information about The Simpsons they've ever received except for from the television show itself. Or when you ask them about, you know, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they immediately exclude any information that has not come from like even if they want to do they can't um these things are cultural objects and they're formed not just by you know the movies or the tv shows or the video games but by all the information that we're hearing um from all the sources and so once we realize that it means that we 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 and we're after um an understanding of what a cultural object is we have to look at all of that like I mean, the Super Bowl is a great example. If you if you want to make sense of the Super Bowl only by watching it, um, you really don't know what it is culturally. Like, it, what you need to do is also watch, you know, the newscasts where the sign-off is like, so what, what are you doing at your, you know, Super Bowl party this weekend, Brad? Oh, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to do this. You know, all of that that surrounds it is what makes it the event that it is. And anyone trying to understand a big deal about the super bowl from just watching the the super bowl would would be left going i don't get this at all um you had to see like the, the cultural context in it i mean just to give you another example i mean the, the last of us is 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 big right now and you know last of us already it it's a it's an adaptation of a video game. so there's some intertextuality in that too and that you know If you know the video game, you know extra stuff. But what I've been intrigued by, for instance, is like almost every time on Instagram now, I'm seeing lots of videos about how Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey are like best buds or how like the two of them really get along well outside and how like she considers him like a a big brother kind of figure. All of that, like how can that not color how you make sense of that? the two characters in, in, in this show. Um, or for instance, what I've been fascinated by because I played the video game and I guess I never figured that mushrooms were were a part of it. I mean, it now makes sense and I feel stupid, but like it's mentioned explicitly in the, in the, um, TV show and the news have really picked up on this. Like there's all sorts of like CNN articles about like mushrooms and about like fungi and about like, you know, the, the, the dangers that they might actually pose. And if you're, you're reading all that material again, how can it not send you back to the, the text of last of us and, and see something different in the, the fungi a, a, and sort of distinguish them from like our usual history of, 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 of zombies and so forth, you know, or uh, one more example on that there there was episode three, um offers a beautiful sort of touching gay love story um that really got talked about a lot but of course because it was a touching gay love story it meant that there were trolls and you know right wing jerks who hated it and started a review bomb it um and so you look at you know the, its aggregate scores on some sites it's not doing all that well as an episode um but because of all the sort of hoopla around that and how much it got talked about that that automatically queers the show in, in a way that like maybe the show wouldn't seem as queer um or we wouldn't look for as much queerness in the show or at least queer friendliness um has the the pyrotechs encourage us to do so you put all those things together and you see that like you can't really make sense of last of us as, as just a um um, just a, a TV show. There's all the paratextuality. I mean, to your last question about like audiences, I mean, I think what, what I like, and one of the things that excites me about this is that um paratextuality is a, as a way to reframe the idea of active audiences that, you know, the, the, the complaints about active audience theory was, was always, well, yeah, it's fine for me to sit at home and, and, you know, grumble and complain, and tell, you know, my wife on the sofa next to me that I don't like this part of the show, but what does that actually do, um, for anyone else? Um, and what I think a paratexts are a sort of game that we can all play and a pair, a paratext through paratext, you can sort of invest your interpretations, um, and float it out there as a, an object to be consumed by others with the hope that you're going to try and veer the text off course. Um, And and that's hard for many audience members to do successfully, but it's another way of thinking about how active audiencehood isn't just a mode of interpretation. We make these interpretations and often then invest them into, pour them into paratext that then might change other people's interpretations. Um, So, you know, when you are that that episode of of last of us you get a paratextual battle from the people out there saying hey this is a touching love story um and it 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 shows a beautiful like queer or queer friendly text um two people saying no this is horrible or whatever um and they're investing all that in the paratext so it's a paratextual battle
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: Well, as someone who's never seen The Last of Us, I now know what to look out for. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, just on the different types of um, kind of norms surrounding media, I wanted to touch on book, on chapter four of your book, where you look at critical the- uh, theoretical positions from Pierre Bordeaux, Sarah Ahmed, Judith Butler, Um, To kind of examine the complexities of dislike, which can stem from a variety of reasons that are intertwined with performances of nationalism, gender, race and sexuality. Um, You mentioned the case study of girls and Lena Dunham, uh, and that I felt was particularly striking, um, as many uh, reviewers criticised the show for promoting um, a white neoliberal feminism. And I was wondering if you could expand on the gendered norms discussed in the book that may hinder women from expressing dislike. And how this relates to larger cultural systems of dislike, including political contexts.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was one of the things I was especially interested in in um, in hearing is how often gender um, was brought in very explicitly into the discussions, um, uh, or even if it wasn't explicit, it was screamingly implicit. <laughs> uh, I mean, one of the things that one of the reasons that might be and why it might have sort of surprised me relative to earlier uh, audience research that I've done um, is that part of the, the plan all along with this book was that I would use multiple interviewers um, and several of my interviewers were, were women. Um, and uh, I think when they were speaking to women, understandably there were things women were willing to tell them that they wouldn't have been willing to tell me um and so i it, it was a nice way of getting to hear some some more of this but along the way it, it, i did get really fascinated by how performances of dislike are so often gendered um it began with one of my one of my researchers talked or interviewers talked to quite a lot of older um viewers and there were a lot of older white women particularly who really refused the idea that they disliked something because they didn't want to be negative and there was a real sense of propriety about how they talked about it. That like negativity is not something that we should do. It's, it's not proper. Um, and it really ties into the ideas of like respectability politics, right? they wanted to be respectable. Um, they didn't want to be the sort of complaining quote shrill voice. Um, and indeed, if you, you start to think about like a lot of the words like shrill or so forth that get associated with, um, with performances of dislike, quite often they're they can be very gendered, um, and they can point to the sort of impropriety, uh, not just of dislike, but of women dislike. Um, and, and so, I got really interested in in um, in when and how people felt they could talk about dislike and who they could talk about it with, and and saw countless instances in which women were reflecting, as I said, either explicitly or implicitly on how um it was not considered proper for them to be disliking um and yet the irony was that they often had more to to dislike um precisely because the popular culture around them had been created largely by men um with men in mind often um that left more women out um and it left them disliking more left them dissatisfied Um, and yet in a situation in which they knew that they weren't meant to be talking about that dissatisfaction with others, um, which fascinates me because it it ties into, I guess, some of the larger like political stakes that I think are, uh, uh, you know, engaged. I hoped to engage a bit by the book about, you know, how we think about dislike in general. And, and we've got this history of in the field and, certainly out at large of, of framing dislike as snobbery or as negativity. And it is so often it, whether intended or not, it can work. It's got a really sharp rhetorical edge that is used to shut up marginalized viewers. It's used to shut up women. Um, It's used to shut up people of color. It's used to shut up um, all sorts of people who have legitimate grievances and are just told, no, 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 can you please be polite about this? Which means be positive. Which means don't complain. And so that doesn't end up in the public public sphere. So uh, that that was, the, it, as I said, I saw so much more of that talking about gender, but I saw about it saw it in discussions about race, about sexuality. Um, it really kept coming up again and again in the material.
2: And I really appreciated the fact that in the book you mentioned um, Sarah Ahmed's uh, analogy of the feminist buzzkill, which I think is quite appropriate.
1: And that... Yeah, women's work is great on that, and I love exactly that 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 metaphor she has of the, you know sitting at the the family table or the image of so the family table, and and the the woman not feeling that she can say anything because the family members will just then think she's ruined the 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 dinner, and it just seems like that is the the position that so often women and other marginalized viewers are put into. And, and that's also why this is, there's something at stake in, in both speaking our dislikes and in, as a researcher, amplifying people's dislikes.
2: So how do you respond to criticisms that the expression of dislike is inherently negative and unproductive and that focusing on it can lead to further polarization and division in society?
1: I mean, if we can't, one way to think about it is that we can't speak negatively, we can only ever celebrate we can only ever compliment the world has to be, we, we are forced to accept every structure, every system around us, you know, like the world as it we'll be all we ever get. Like the, the only way that change happens, the only way that like we move forward is with starting with some negativity, you know? And that's why I think that whole binary of negative positive is kind of so insidious precisely because it, Refuses to see that one feeds into the other. Like so often negativity is the kind of breakfast that the positivity like feeds on. That you know, think of anything good or brilliant um, in, in your life or in the world. It came from someone thinking, that's crap. We need something better. Um, and so it's important to, to say that's crap at times. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to sort of romanticize all statements of that's crap we the problem again with with having this negative positive binary is also we throw so much into both of them that perhaps we need to complicate um and what that leaves us doing is is thinking that all sorts of negative emotions that aren't the same are the same so that we think that hate is the same as trolling is the same as dislike is the same as disgust is the same as meh um and there, are very different responses um, and, and so what I'd love us to do is, is sort of be able to taxonomize those, and be able to realize that there are types of negativity we really should listen to we must listen to um, and there are other types of negativity yeah, we'll d- let's not listen to those because they deserve absolutely no airing
2: I mean, I would love to read a book about meth as a politician <laughs> <concerned>. no, exactly <laughs> Um, but I agree. I think the kind of messiness that comes with getting rid of the binary of just good and bad is something that is quite fascinating to embrace. Um, and I was just wondering if you had any advice for individuals who kind of want to engage in those kind of critical discussions of dislike, but are probably afraid of being labeled, as you mentioned, snobbish or elitist.
1: Yeah, but I think the thing is focus on what's being said you know, and and be willing to stand up to the the allegation of snovishness or elitishness. so um I'll give you an example. I am unapologetic in saying that two and a half men is absolute crap. Um I think two and a half men is a a venal show that it's disgusting, it's misogynist, homophobic, transphobic crap. um now. When I've said it's crap, I've been in situations where people are like, "Oh, that's so snobbish," and like, I'm just picking on like a an old style sitcom. And you know what? There are people who watch this, and I'm, and again, I'm enough of an audience researcher to know that I should should do the work to see why people do like it. I don't want to predict why they like it, but I also have this text in front of me that I can see is is transphobic. I can see is homophobic. I can see is like deeply misogynist Uh, and I don't think I need to be shy about saying it's crap because it's all those things. Um, and realizing then as you're a researcher that like, sometimes people lead with, you know, the words like crap or garbage or so forth that, that set off our, like, you know, our alarms for snobbishness or elitism and sometimes they are elite they are partly elitish elitist or snobbish but that there's also something deeper there and so like be willing to listen to that and be willing to like delve into that and and ar- articulate it because as i said earlier there's so many really justifiable concerns that we should be raising about you know popular culture and the world around us and if we are scared to because someone's going to think we're a snob you know then hegemony wins,
2: and
1: we wouldn't want that. <laughs> oh, exactly. No. Way, you would... Your point about meh—I yeah. I, I love a book on meh, but I, it here it's a great game to play. How do you study meh methodologically? It's great. I mean, one of the reasons I I went to impassioned dislike, mm-hmm. and that's what I mean by dislike—not just meh, but like impassioned. I care about this is because people can articulate and will articulate and want to articulate those dislikes. But if the the whole core of meh is, eh, you know, like, I, I don't particularly like law and order. I mean, I can say I don't like the propaganda, but there's so much more I don't like. Can I tell you why? Not really. It's just meh. <laughs> and so it it seems like the worst audience research project, like the smallest interviews, um and also how do you recruit like how do you say please come and talk to us about things that you don't really have anything to say about
2: that you're indifferent about
1: yeah it's one of those things that exists and we all know it exists but i don't know how you study it
2: could be a future project yeah there we go um what do you hope readers will take away from your book and how do you hope it will contribute to broader conversations about the role and criticism uh in society
1: Um, so, I mean, as I said, I think there are so many different types of negative emotions and I just focused on one. Um, and that leaves it open to all sorts of critiques about the things that I didn't look at. Um, particularly some of those critiques might suggest that, you know, I shone a pretty positive light on, um, dislike. I looked at, um, at more sort of noble uh, reasons and often progressive reasons for disliking things but there are all sorts of other forms of negativity other forms of dislike so on a simple level i hope that um that anyone who has those criticisms or not everyone who you're welcome to read and and go meh (laughs) um that that some people who have those criticisms like go forward and do that other work too and that if what i'm saying is that there's a spectrum of of uh and there are all sorts of different types of negativity i only looked at one type what i'd love to see is a sort of flourishing of research looking at some of those other types i mean i very much have a belief in in academia and scholarly knowledge is entirely dialogic like i will never have the word on anything. um anything i talk about um i just want to you know throw forward and, and get others to respond to and I'm happy and excited when others do it better than me um, and take it further than me, than me, and I, and so I hope that that idea does get uh, taken further. I mean, the, the larger project that I, I I would hope it sort of would contribute to is you know alluded to this already, but just realizing that there's a lot at stake in in distinguishing different types of negative emotions because I think you know although I I'm looking at why people dislike television shows i'm not asked broader political questions um i think there's there are connections to some broader political questions and that you know we we can think about how many activist movements for instance are shut down or ignored just by people saying oh they're being so negative um why are they always complain um and you know respectability politics exists largely on ideas of like you know having to be positive all the time. And so if we can really, you know, disaggregate different types of negativity, hopefully the larger political stakes is we could learn to listen to very legitimate grievances, concerns, um, problems, and, and think about the visions of the world that, that, um, are being invoked behind them. Um, and realize that those aren't the same as, you know, sort of angry trolls and, and hate speakers.
2: I'm not sure if you are aware of the uh, activist group uh, Extinction Rebellion, but uh, they're a climate uh, protest group in the UK. Um, and a lot of their tactics, um, are, well, they used to be very extreme, so they glued themselves to the build uh, to buildings. Uh, uh, their protests were very visible. They'd shut down highways. Um, and I just thought of them when you were talking because I re- distinctly remember a lot of dislike to their actions, but not really acknowledging the cause.
1: Yeah, I know. Exactly. Well, on the flip side of that is, you know, I've earlier in my career, I've done a lot of work on satire and, and part of the idea there, realizing is that satire works with an awareness of what we're talking about here is that satire knows that people don't like negativity. And so it throws comedy in as a kind of way of softening the blow. Um, Inevitably really, there are points where I'm like, well, why do you hat this off on the blow voice? You know, We're like and some of the best satirists are good examples. I mean, think about times when you've seen john Stewart, particularly back when he hosted the Daily Show, when he would just yell at the camera, like there was no satire there. He was just angry. And he had often a legitimate grievance. Um so I think some of the more powerful moments from some of our most beloved satirists are actually moments where there is no like Joke in there, like Sam B does that a lot too. Sam B allows herself to to be full of rage, um because it's it's coming from a, a place of of like we need to talk about this, and so you know we can't just admire it when it's pretty and and surrounded by comedy in the satiric form. We also just need to listen to it in its pretty raw, you know, unfiltered form.
2: And how have you built on your work since it's been published? Uh, but I haven't. <laughs> um, I mean, the, I, I guess. Did rephrase that? Have you?
1: Yeah. No. Well. No. You know, I mean, I, I am building on one of the things I'm, I'm looking to do is is do more of audience work in general, uh, and I'm launching a sort of multi-country uh, with other scholars um, examination of, of audiences, and so I'm building on the the. The audience part of that not necessarily the dislike part of it
2: and have any recent developments in the world or in your research um added to or changed your initial arguments or findings in the book
1: um i mean i guess one of the reasons the book took a while to produce was i i was always anguishing and worry over and worrying about the degree to which there's so much hate and i everywhere and i didn't want like the defense of dislike to be a defense of that hate and so that that concern and anxiety has never really gone away um i, I it just gets fed um i continually worry that you know i didn't want to be sort of you know the the uh you know devil's advocate <laughs> um, uh, uh but I, but I've, I felt, as I said, there were there were real reasons for, for saying it. But I, I mean, yes, I just continue to get more reasons to be anxious.
2: <laughs> and is there any recent TV show or movie that you've watched that you've actively disliked? Yeah, mm.
1: I mean, I, it's weird. It this goes back to power texts. I we we I use them to curate. So it, it's really rare that i actually see something that's bad now because i i'm sort of escaping um the the i'm i'm not needing to to watch it um i the era in which i disliked things more is is probably the era before i cut the cable you know when i just turn tv on and and be forced to watch something like Grey's anatomy and go oh i don't like this um whereas now i i guess i'm so selective um so yeah i mean it, uh i can't think of anything i mean there's all sorts of music i dislike but I, because i dislike it i don't care to listen to who's singing it
2: can you give me an example
1: oh no i'd have to sing it as i with a knee it was like i just like I, I i don't like that song uh what are, i mean you know there's all sorts of like you know two and a half man is is the giving um but yeah, I don't know what are, what what have I disliked. Sorry, I, I don't have a good answer to that right now.
2: No, it's okay. Also, I love that you mentioned Grey's Anatomy because I also very much dislike that show, but my cousin sister's watch every single season, and I don't understand how.
1: It's it's the you know I joke with people. It started when every a whole wave of undergrads who grew up on that show couldn't spell my name correctly. Um, but it it really it lost me on the pick me choose me monologue is just like oh god like just put that the knife in the heart of feminism Willie. like it's just the most vile speech in the history of romance
2: um is there anything else uh you'd like to mention that we didn't have a chance to discuss no i
1: don't i, I don't think so i mean I, I i i think we we covered some of the key things that i i was interested in the the, the book i mean as i said my hope is just that Um, I, I read more fascinating books about sort of, you know, how, um, I didn't get this right. And now let's look at how, how that could be done better or so forth. Like that's what I'm excited by.
2: I think that's a good way to end this conversation. Um, always continue to build on ideas. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and thank you very much for listening.
1: Sure. Thank you so much, Sim. It was, it was nice talking to you.
2: Thank you for listening to our Global Media and Communication podcast. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out through our email, cargcasc.upen.edu, or follow us on Twitter. Until next time.